Well, good morning and welcome to Bethel downtown. Welcome to church. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown location, and I'm delighted that you're here. And we'll see if you feel that way here in about 45 minutes. Um, here at Bethel, you see, we like, to, um, we like to walk through an entire book of Scripture. We like to preach what's called expositionally. We walk through an entire passage of Scripture. We try to discern and detect, try to discover what does a particular passage mean to them there and then. From that, we want to understand what are the timeless truths that are taught for all people in all places across all times. And then from there, we try to drop it down into our context, our day and our time, dealing with our issues as a people of the 21st century in Western Hemisphere in East Texas. How does all this stuff make sense to us? Well, welcome to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's been affectionately called by preachers as the Death Valley of the New Testament. It's hot. It's dangerous. And once you go there, you do not want to stay very long. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with me. We'll be here for just a little while. What we do here is uh, not super easy, but here's, here's the reality. I want to affirm and confess, and I want to declare with no reservation whatsoever, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired. All Scripture, and therefore it is profitable for instruction, for teaching, for rebuke, so that the man or woman of God might be wise unto salvation. That's 2 Timothy 3, and I believe that. However, not all Scriptures, not all passages, are equally teachable in every context. There are some passages that really lend themselves well for a large format worship corporate gathering kind of a situation. There are some that are really more geared for a classroom. Hey, this is heavy doctrine, heavy theology, heavy technical stuff going on here. And then there are some that are really best suited for a counselor's office. This morning's text is one of those that is perfectly suited for a counselor's office. So how do we, gathered for worship, this is on the schedule, and I had this one circled like months ago, how do we, in a large format worship setting with a mixed demographic, a mixed bag of who's here, how do we extract those truths and still apply them to our lives? Well, there is still to be truth. It seems like there is always going to be truth from God's word, but we're going to try to be delicate on some matters and apply these things to all of us. Because here's the reality. It seems like in just about every generation, there's a small group of people, maybe scattered around the world, that feel and receive this sort of holy restlessness, this sort of righteous discontent. And they begin trying to, to figure out how they can change the world. And surely enough, there have been moments and seasons in the history of God's people where there have been revivals that have broken out. God's done some things. People followed along and there was change. Revival broke out, certainly. But that's really not the normative experience. The normative experience of a Christian, of a believer, is to live a fairly unspectacular life among other believers living unspectacular lives in front of unbelievers who are doing their dead-level best to live spectacular lives. And that's pretty much what it means to be a Christian. You're not that spectacular. The people around you look around, snicker, snicker. They're not either. And yet we exist in a community, people who are desperately trying to be spectacular. So what are we supposed to do with all that? Well, instead, we're invited, we are encouraged to be the very presence of God in our context. We don't have to try to change the world. Jesus did that. He crushed it 2,000 years ago. Nothing's ever been the same. Instead, we get to be the presence 
of what Christ accomplished in our world, always, ever increasingly being transformed into the image of God's own son. What if we simply grew up into the crown God was holding over our heads? And that's really ultimately and utterly for those of you that have read ahead and seen all the wonders and all the hand grenades and all the landmines that are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that's really what this passage is all about. And so it's our big idea. It goes like this. Bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. It's not exciting. It's not sizzling. But it is a whole bunch of steak. Now, this is the first time I've ever done this in my pastoral ministry ever. And I revile it when guys do this. I think, ah, you're cheating or you're punting or both. This passage is so thick and meaty and rich, we're gonna do this over two Sundays. I've never done that before, but this is literally part one. Next week, we're gonna, you're gonna hear a lot of the same stuff because next week is part two. Y'all come back anyway. You survived the time change, you're gonna be fine. Come on back. Next week, we're gonna do part two of this passage. So I just wanna give you ample warning. What we're gonna do, I'm gonna read the text in its entirety, just the first 16 verses. First Corinthians chapter seven, one through 16. And then I'm going to explain how this is, where this is, why this is. Try to unpack it a little bit. We'll apply it, leave some things unanswered, leave some things dangling out there as a hook to bring you back for next week. We can hopefully land the plane. This passage, this chapter 7, has often been used as the manual for how to deal with marriages and divorce in the church. And I get that, and we'll talk to that. It's not principally nor primarily why it's in our Bibles. And we have to get that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes to these people, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. I practiced reading that 19 times, still can't get through it. I got to tell you. All right. But y'all just keep praying for me. It gets, it gets, the, the, the waves get higher. All right, here we go. Verse four. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Strange amount of amens not happening right now. I just wanna... <laughs> Verse five. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreements for a limited time, that you, together, that you come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widow, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, uh, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Whew. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Have you looked around your house lately? Just saying. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you 
to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word. (laughs) It is. It is. Now, there's a lot going on here. We've been talking about the fact that Paul's sitting in Ephesus. He's been there on his third missionary journey. He's been there about three years or so. The church in Corinth is about four years old, and he gets a response and a report from what's going on there. He writes them a letter. They don't like it. They send him a letter and a report. Paul then sits down, and he writes this to them. Six chapters of rebuke, seven chapters of responses. You're going to get all throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians now concerning the thing. Now concerning the thing, about six or seven or eight of them depend on how you want to do the grammar. This is the first one that he addresses. It may or may not be the first one in sequence, but this is the first one that he's going to want to address. Why? Well, you might remember there had already been so many issues of doctrine and doing, of belief and behavior, of attitude and action, that he rebukes them for their error for six chapters. But now he's got to correct a fundamental flaw in the fabric of their fellowship. There's, there's some things that are starting to go off balance, and he's got to address it because so much is at stake. Let me say this to us. Then as now, the home and the family were super central to the culture. Then as now, the home and family presented all sorts of wonderful opportunities to come alongside the church. Little outposts of the kingdom were called to band together. But, but, here's the dark side. The home and the family also provided potential distractions from the ministry and kingdom mission of the church. There has always been a danger in over-prioritizing home. Really, that's what Paul's going to get into. There's always been a danger for Christians to over-prioritize their homes and by extension, under-prioritize the church. Very interesting. Now, this is a super long chapter. In fact, the only other chapter that's longer than this one is chapter 15, talking about the resurrection from the dead, which is a pretty big deal. The only other longer chapter than the resurrection chapter is chapter 7, dealing with home life, because it is so central to what is going on in the life of the church. It's a bit strange to us, but the central idea, the central theme of the entire chapter actually comes from the middle. I'm going to read it here in just one second. The middle paragraph of the chapter, verses 17 to 24, is actually the the hinge. It's the anchor. Everything in verses 1 to 16 that I've already read points to it. Everything 25 to 40 points back to it. So it's a strange way to handle this, but I couldn't think of any other way than say, let's address the middle hinge first. I'll go back and unpack the first 16 verses. Next week, Lord willing, we'll come together. We'll deal with 25 through 40. And that one will be the one where we spend a lot more time doing some deep dive on marriage specifically, on relationships, on singleness. But this morning, we got to deal with some other stuff first. So let me just read to you this central passage, and you'll begin to hear where I got our big idea, bloom where you're planted. The middle portion of this paragraph says this. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Do you get it? Bloom where you're planted. You don't got to go change the world. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Just in case you, Corinthians, are starting to think that I'm picking on you, and it's not my theology that's adrift, Corinth. It's you. I'm teaching this to all the churches. So y- y'all aren't special. You're just, you're just more deviant, more aggressively. This is what I teach to all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? To which I want to say, oh no, not my business. I don't, I don't know. 
Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Good golly, what does that clinic look like? <laughs> what is happening 2,000 years ago? And you walk in and go, yeah, can you, uh, you do a little something about this? And they go, <laughs> yeah. Paul says, no, no, stop doing that. Praise God that's in the Bible. Like, I don't want you to try to undo that. <laughs> was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. <laughs> Four, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. You have to understand that is a napalm canister full of hand grenades, full of angry Doberman pincers with bees in their mouths. For the apostle Paul to say, circumcision means nothing is the biggest record scratch in the New Testament. Saul of Tarsus would have thrown rocks at your face till you died if you had said that to him prior to his conversion. But now he's going, it was an outward thing. It, didn't, it wasn't a thing. It, does, it doesn't matter. Uncircumcision, circumcision, it doesn't matter. Now, a little bit of snark from Paul. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. By the way, to an Old Testament Jew, circumcision was a commandment of God. But what he's just said is things have changed. Times they have a-changed, y'all. That outward symbol no longer means anything. And for Saul of Tarsus, Jew of Jew, Pharisee of Pharisees, tutored under Gamaliel, circumcised on the eighth day, other tribe of Benjamin, to say circumcision doesn't matter at all, nor does uncircumcision, it's not a thing. Circumcision was always about the condition of the heart, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 39, always. For neither of those matter anything, just following the commandments of God, which is obedience to where he has placed you. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Not in sin, not in stupidity or foolishness, but bloom where you're planted. Verse 21, were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Go for it. But that's not what we're trying to do here. For he who was called in the Lord as a bond servant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. You don't become a Christian and suddenly go change the world. You pretty much bloom where you're planted. Some of your translations, like the ESV, might have a little included subtitle that says something like, um, live as you were called or stay where you are. Okay, fine. I prefer bloom where you're planted. Now, I know we're already in the weeds here. I haven't really even got to verse one yet of our passage, but it's important. We have to see the forest as well as the trees. Remember, when Paul writes this letter to the church at Corinth, he's addressing splits and factions, isms and schisms, divides, and he's trying to call them back to the main purpose of their fellowship, who they really are. Too much is at stake to allow the church to be pulled apart. Remember, there's one church in that entire area, in that whole region. Now, these New Testament epistles are demonstrating the centrality of the church as the plan for God's kingdom in this age. And so it is supposed to be primary in the hearts and minds of the people that are associated with and members of the church. So previously, we looked at areas that required doctrinal correction and church discipline. Now we look to people who were splintering off according to their own particular beliefs and how that was continuing to fracture and divide the church. We've said it for about 10 weeks now. The sin of the culture generally tends to creep into the church and not addressed, not met proactively, biblically, in wisdom and in prayer can be devastating. It can be super detrimental. Okay, with all of that, chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1 sets the stage, really, for the entire rest of the chapter. So what we're going to get in verse 1 is a very strange statement. 
Paul says, now concerning, it's a new, complete literary device. He says, now concerning, it's a very clear block and, and break in what was previously written. Now it's a new idea, a new notion. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he'd gotten a report about them. He'd also gotten a letter from them. And they were very particular. And it just makes me go, what is going on in that church where they gather together they have tater tot casserole, and someone says, hey, write this part down. I want to know about, is it right for a man to have sexual relations with a woman? Steve, I'm not writing that. No, go ahead. It's fine. Go ahead. Go ahead. And then he writes it down. And he goes to Paul, and Paul's in Ephesus. He's working. He's wiping his brow. People are getting healed. He's working. He's teaching. He's preaching. He opens this letter, and he's like, yowza. Okay. This Thursday just got weird. And so he has to answer this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, colon, quote, in the English. Not quite so clear in the Greek. I think that's correct. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. <laughs> well, apparently what they had done, and it takes a lot of study and a ton of heavy lifting to understand the context, what's going on. Paul had been in Corinth for 18 months. And apparently at some time, Paul had said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Like me, Paul said, because I'm an apostle. I'm celibate. I'm, I'm not involved in that. And that's fine. They took that, ripped it out of context, and tried to make it their entire church policy. Always a bad idea. Because, by the way, it's very likely, we don't know this for sure, we're never told, he never talks about it. And I don't know why. Almost certainly, the Apostle Paul had been married. I don't know that for sure. I wouldn't take a bullet for it. But there are some context clues. We'll see this a little bit more in verses 8 and 9. To be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to have been married. That's just for sure. Historically, we know that Paul, we know in Acts 20, Acts 26, he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. To be on the Sanhedrin, though young, he have to be married. He talks about some other experiences. To be full orthodox in Judaism as a rabbinic student, you have to be married. Now, he never talks about the fact that he was. So the thought is either that she died at some point, and we don't know, or even perhaps even in the betrothal she died, or as soon as he became a Christian in Acts 9, converted from Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul, that she hooks him. She doesn't want any part of that, and she leaves. We don't know. But Paul received this gift of celibacy, which is not one that I hear people praying for very loudly down in the foundry, incidentally. Never heard. Oh, God, would you please dry up my passion? Never. I don't usually hear that one. Not even in elder meetings. Can I out these guys? No. But Paul says, apparently, as he's teaching, hey, this is my gift. And so they heard that, they took that, and they amplified it way too much. It was super awkward then and now. Probably not as awkward then as it is now. Now, what happened is there was apparently a splinter group, we know from chapters 5 and 6, that was practicing the Epicurean Greek philosophy in the church. They were practicing all sorts of varietals of sexual immorality and grossness, and so Paul says, you got to stop that, stop that right now. And oh, by the way, I wish there was penicillin because y'all are gross. There's that group. They were doing the Epicurean thing. Hey, this body doesn't matter. We're Gnostic Greeks, which just means this body doesn't really count for anything. Use it for whatever purpose you want. It doesn't matter at all. There was another group of philosophers in Greek. They were called the Stoics. They also were Gnostic Greeks. And those people said, the body's just evil. It doesn't matter what you do with it, but you should avoid pleasure and avoid pain at all costs because it's beneath you. So those folks now are gonna get addressed in chapter seven. They thought because of what Paul had said, they took it, they twisted it. Can that happen? All the time. They took it, they twisted it. They said, oh, it's not good to have any kind of physical intimacy whatsoever. 
They said, no, the body's physical, so don't even address it, don't gratify it, don't tend to its business, we might say. And so they were beginning to live as though they had already been fully redeemed and resurrected. Now, there's a really interesting thing that's happening here in chapter 7 that's going to help us make sense of other things later in our study in 1 Corinthians, like in chapter 11. You've got these weird things about head coverings, all that stuff. Those don't make any sense unless you understand what's happening in chapter 7. There were some people that had begun to believe, hey, we're already, and not yet. Now, I love, I love, I love how our Bibles read us more than we read them. If you spend any time at Bethel, you know that we like to say around here a lot, hey, we're from the future. The kingdom is come, the kingdom is coming. We are from the future because at his, at his burial and his, his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ pulled the borders and the boundaries of the coming kingdom and he pinned it at the cross and we are those people who are from the future living in the present and we live because that's true in that way. But there's a balance. It is possible to overthink in those terms and to go too far. These people believed that they were from the coming kingdom but they took it a step too far. They begin to say things, and we'll find out more about this in chapter 11. They begin to say things like, hey, we're already from the future. And we're already redeemed. True, true. And we're already resurrected. False. Look around. No. And so they were saying, we are, we're like the angels that Jesus talks about in Matthew 22 or in Mark 12 or in Luke 20. Not given in marriage, not marrying. We're like that. So we're just going to shuck these coils and we're going to live as though the second coming has already occurred. And Paul says, stop that. Stop that right now. You're missing the point. You don't understand. It's a huge misunderstanding. It's a dangerous misapplication. It's going to cause problems. And so they said, is it right for us to not want to have physical intimacy? And so Paul's going to answer in four super quick categories. I'm not going to unpack all of these, but in verses two through seven, he deals with some people who are saying, hey, we're believers and we're married. We should practice long-term abstinence, Right? The idea goes like this, hey, since it's good in our way of thinking for there not to be sexual intimacy, what do we do about it in the confines of marriage? Should we just not at all? Paul says, simple, stop that. Bloom where you're planted. Then there's another group, verses eight to nine, deals with those who are presently single. They were probably married previously, but had either been divorced or had been widowed. What are they supposed to do? Easy, bloom where you're planted. Well, verse 10, 11 deals with separation or divorce from two Christian spouses. Since it's good in our way of thinking for there not to be sexual intimacy, should we just divorce our spouses? Paul says, no. Bloom where you're planted. Okay, well then verses 12 to 16, it deals with separation or divorce from a believer and a non-believer. Since it's good in our way of thinking for there not to be sexual intimacy at all, should we just divorce our spouses? Paul says, no. Bloom where you're planted. Now, this passage has been used for 2,000 years as sort of the pepper mill about the head, neck, and face of what church people are supposed to do in the context of divorce. And it's helpful, and to be fair, there's not as much written anywhere else in the New Testament, but we have to understand that's not the primary purpose of what Paul's doing. Paul's not handing down a bylaw or policy or an articles of confederation. He's not starting a new 501c3 for Christian divorces. He's not doing that. He's saying, hey, Christian, you're in Corinth. You live at First Corinth, bloom where you're planted, and all the other stuff will begin to fade away. Paul's point is not to hand down some manual. It's Paul saying, hey, the church has come. The church is now in operation. 
Paul's point is to elevate the role of the believer, the home, and therefore utterly the church. I should point out, of all of Paul's writings, of all of Paul's chapters, chapter seven is the least combative. He'll say again, I don't, I'm not like given a mandate. I'm not given an order. I'm not even given a command. This is just a recommendation. Here's a concession. He's not super dogmatic about it. And so we need to keep that in mind. When I hear people thunder at me about 1 Corinthians 7 and what it means for divorce, I go, hold on. Paul wasn't even all that dogmatic about it. Pull back. What's really going on? What is the thing under the thing? There's always a thing under the thing. More than likely, somebody's not blooming where the sovereign Lord Jesus planted them. All right, let's get into this very briefly. Verse two, we're gonna start picking apart these four little categories of what to do since they were misquoting or they were twisting Paul's words. Chapter seven, verse two. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, let me again say very directly, sexual immorality, this word porneia, simply means any kind of sexual activity or conduct outside the confines of the covenant of marriage between husband and wife. Now, that's a long definition. That's why Paul just says porneia. One word, easy. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality. In other words, Paul doesn't pull any punch. He says, look, we have been redeemed, but you're not fully redeemed. You still drag around and struggle with a sin nature. And the, the urge to sexual tendency is very, very strong. You cannot control it yourself. And so you flee or you fill that empty glass with another substance so that that vessel is never filled with the wrong kind of material. Since, he says, uh, because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have, and have is, is a euphemism, is a Greek and Latin and Hebraism for sexual relations, should have his own wife. But there's an amazing balance here. But um, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So there is supposed to be this uh, balance. There's a dignification. Now, I want to say very, very delicately, very, very, very quick. In the ancient world of Corinth, the primary culprit was prostitution. But of course, there was also a frequency of occurrences of relations with a partner who was outside of the marriage. It was very, very common. It was normative. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but check this out. There is literally not one, zero other piece of literature anywhere in existence from that time, from that part of the world, the Greco-Roman Empire, there is not one other piece of literature that exists anywhere that directs people to sexual morality. Not a one. The Apostle Paul is the first. And he revolutionizes the Roman Empire from within. How? By elevating, dignifying, ennobling women. And the, 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 the religion of Christianity exploded in the first century, largely because of the conversions of women who were invited in to be dignified. Now, how can that be? More on that in a moment. In fact, in those days, it was common for a woman to be able to divorce her husband she could do that. And he had two years to pay her back her dowry in full. Usually because she was going to take that and go find another guy. If she couldn't get remarried in two years, Caesar Augustus would fine her. If he couldn't pay back the dowry early enough, then he would get fined 18% annually. And the Apostle Paul says, stop all of that. Stop all of that right now. Now, when Paul's talking about sexual morality, he generally has in mind cultic prostitution. When a woman was married, <laughs> she was told at her wedding, it's not like our weddings, and for those of you that I've married, I hope this is true, and those of you who I will marry, I'm certain this is true. 
she was told at her wedding, when your husband goes to the temple prostitutes or when your husband goes with another uh, non-virtuous partner, it is not that he doesn't love you. It's just that he's fulfilling his desires. Don't take it personally. I mean, I think that's actually on the bumper sticker for New Orleans. Is what it, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Relax. Relax. Save your emails. Save your emails. So Paul says, I understand that that's the culture, and you're trying to react too harshly against it. Stop that. Don't do that. So verse 2, or sorry, verse 3, the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. That is the duties of sexual intimacy. But please, as has been misused for 2,000 years, this does not mean the only defense against temptation is marriage. Well, I got no other options. I guess I'll just marry you. Easy there, romantic cowboy. That's not what we're doing here. It's not what Paul is saying at all. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And in the context, complete and total. The wife does not have complete and total authority over her own body, but the husband does. And this is a bit of a wonderful, scandalous surprise in the, old, in the uh, ancient world. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does as well. There's a mutuality, a bilateral agreement on this. And I have heard it many times. Well, we just haven't been together in a long time. And I'm like, well, for starters, You've literally got a dip in your mouth the size of a honey badger. You haven't bathed in three weeks. You're mean as a snake. And I don't even want to have you in my office right now. Like, you can pull, you got some, you got a, you know, there's some, there, come on now. There's a shower. That's all I'm going to say about that. There's worse things than Listerine, fellas. Okay, all right. Verse five, do not depriving, but more appropriately, it's, stop with the depriving, because they were. So it's not just an imperative. It was, hey, stop with the depriving of one another. He understands what they're already doing, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Interesting. This is only the second time that Satan's been mentioned. The first time was in chapter five when some guy was having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmom. And Paul's like, yeah, ooh, ooh, ooh. I don't know who pays for that wedding, but throw that guy out, church. You got to clean up your house because the church is a colony of the kingdom. Now this time, you may abstain for a time as a time of prayer and fasting. And I'll just tell you, it's the 21st century. I've had lots of counseling opportunities. I have never, never, not once ever heard this sentence. You know, we haven't been together for months physically, but it's just because it's just such a nonstop fervent prayer fest. We just, we, just, we just see each other and we just hold hands and, we, and then we just raise hands and then we, and then we sing some Keith Green and we just, we just worship, Pastor. We just worship. I'd love to see it. Hasn't happened. So if that's your excuse, well, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm, I'm praying. Get on with it. Say amen already, all right? Now, what's going on? Well, times were tough for the church in Corinth. They really did believe that, hey, this might be the end of the age. Earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. And so they begin to stop and pray. They go, man, this is, this is bad. We want to abstain because we're not so sure that we want to have children in an environment like this. And Paul understood that. Paul thought that Christ would return in his own lifetime, didn't. So Paul says, look, if you want to stop, that's the only basic, legitimate, healthy form of birth control was abstinence. And so if you want to stop praying fast about, do you want to bring children into this? Fine, then, then, then pray about that. I get that. 
It's a kind of a revolutionary idea. Well, verse 6, now as a concession, not a command. I'm not, I'm not enforcing, I'm not mandating this. I'm just saying as a, as a sort of, hey, a compromise. He says, verse 6, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. Well, how can you, how can you say that, Paul? But verse 7 is key. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. And since it's a gift from God, no one gift is above or beyond any other. Paul says, this just happens to be my gift. I don't struggle in that area. <laughs> and again, I rarely hear people praying for that one. But when Paul says, he wishes everybody was like him in this way, in his celibacy, so that they could be committed to, his, to the service and ministry of the church. That is a massive, massive gravitational deal. How can that possibly be? How could everybody in the church be celibate? Well, it doesn't work in the reality. is There was a sect a long time ago, a couple hundred years ago, called the Shakers. They didn't believe in marriage or physical intimacy. And surprise, there are no more Shakers. <laughs> just, you know, after a while, they just, mm, they weren't no more. But what is Paul saying? It's really sort of an amazing thing. Here, here's why it's such a big deal what Paul says. In all ancient Israel, the tribe, the clan, and the family were absolutely central. And your future depended on how well off your family was, how many children you could produce to sustain that family. And the same was true in the Greco-Roman world. The home and the family was utterly central. All of life took place from the home. Family life, professional life, social life, everything. If you didn't have children as an infrastructure for your home, you couldn't really have any hope for a solid future. So what's changed? Paul is saying the church is now in operation and everything has changed. Now, this is the shock of 1 Corinthians 7. The church has happened. The church has occurred and everything has changed. Let me be super clear about what Paul is getting at. The home is no longer the primary institution in the world the church is. Now, if you don't understand that, what he's saying in verse 7, then verses 8 and 9 won't make any sense. They seem to be a contradiction. So verses 8 and 9, he's going to pivot. Now, let me talk to those who are unmarried, not just single, but almost certainly widowed or divorced. He's talking to the, the technical word he, he uses, I won't translate, is those who are familiar with intimacy, but are presently not married, either because of death or because of a divorce. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. How can that be? How can that be? In that day and age, if you are a single woman, you have no hope of survival in dignity. None. Your only alternative and opportunity is to turn to a despicable life of prostitution. But Paul says, not anymore. <laughs> the church has come. Sister, we got you. Sister, we got you. So much better than Israel. Israel was a nation of tribes and clans. We're the church. We are a supernational people that is indwelled person by person by person with the very third member of the Trinity of the Godhead. And we got you. You don't, you don't have to go get remarried just because you think you should or you ought to. No, no, the church is here. We got you. It's an astounding scandal of the grace of God. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, some very old translations would say, it's better to marry than to burn. And they meant in hell. No, it's not what this passage is saying. Now, how do you know that you have the gift of celibacy? Well, let me be delicate. 
If you have any inclination to not be, you don't have it. Okay, can I just, if you want to talk more about this in more great detail, you can get in touch, Mike at Bethelbible.com. We'll answer all your questions, no problem. So Paul says, look, bloom where you're planted. Well, hold on a second, Paul. What, 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 about, what about children? I mean, we got we to gotta have children. Isn't the purpose of, of sexual intimacy, procreation? Partly, not fully. And the church has gotten that wrong for a very long time. Partly, not entirely. It is for the two to become one. We'll talk more about this next week, Lord willing. We're not trying to breed the kingdom, Paul says. Listen, there are billions of people out there who are dead and dying, who are going to spend a Christless eternity. Paul seems to be saying in the New Eric translation, oh, that we would care more about that than Sunday afternoon volleyball across town. You want to have kids? Great. Connect them to the church and let them bloom where they are planted. The time is short. Don't you understand? The age is at an end. He's coming. And there are billions who don't know. So it's okay to stay married. Later on in the chapter, he's going to say, live as though you have no wife. And some of you have circled that. It's not what you think it means. (laughs) Verse 10, to the married, I give this charge. Now, two really quick hits on divorce. But it's not really a manual for divorce. His point is to bloom where you are planted. To the man, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. What? Well, I thought all scripture was God-breathed. It is. What Paul's saying here, this is his way of saying, this is actually found in the sayings of Jesus recorded in the gospel accounts. They probably did not have written copies of the gospels yet. Paul would have heard this himself, being taught by Christ in the deserts of Arabia for three years, and it was floating around in the oral tradition of the gospel accounts. We see this kind of stuff in Mark 10 and Matthew 19. So to, the, to married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to the husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Same thing, unilaterally and bilaterally. You don't have to remarry because the church has come. We got you. Bloom where you planted. Talking to believers here. Verse 12, to the rest I say, this time me, not the Lord, well, it's not that the Lord's not saying it. All the letters in your Bible are red, by the way. They're all red. They're all inspired. It's just that there's no message from Jesus specifically about this in the gospel accounts. So this is Paul's word. By the way, it carries the exact same authority, Paul and Jesus. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So the idea is that they were married and then she became a Christian after the fact. He wants to stay. You should stay there. Same goes. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, that's interesting. We've not thought of it that way. Is this Paul giving an out for divorce? No, you have to sort of synthesize all of the rest of what Paul says. And it's not a hard and fast, ironclad, airtight solution. Generally speaking, we will say divorce in cases of adultery or assault or abandonment. Is that a one-size-fits-all? Absolutely not. Every circumstance is tragic and must be investigated thoroughly. But generally speaking, if you synthesize all that Paul's going to say about divorce, all that Jesus says in Mark 10 and Matthew 22, it is permissible, it is tragic, that in cases of assault or adultery or abandonment, that's how that goes. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy, because of his wife. Wow. 
The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. That's a Jewish word, ceremonially so. But as it is, they are holy. Now, that's been one of the most difficult verses in the history of the church. What does it mean? Just because I'm a believer, do I automatically save my unbelieving spouse? No. You know, the word made holy is sanctified and has a lot of different connotations and denotations. In this case, it puts them in the confines. It sets them apart to put them in a boundary of blessing. The idea is shocking, what Paul has just said, that the church has not leveraged very well for 2,000 years. He's saying what the church has not said. The church for 2,000 years had said, if you're married to an unbeliever, that is an unclean marriage. Paul says, not correct. If you are married to an unbeliever, that is a Christian marriage, and you are a priest or a priestess of that marriage. Think of Paul's protege, Timothy, whose father and grandfather were not believers, and yet through his grandmother and mother was made holy, given access to the truths of the Scripture, existed in the confines of blessing. What Paul is saying is so revolutionary. It is the same thing that happens in the Gospels. When a leper approaches Jesus and the unclean touches the clean, what happens? The unclean becomes clean. Doesn't guarantee salvation for children, no, but it does put them in the confines of blessing. It sets them apart. This is not to enforce or, or affirm infant baptism. That's not at all what Paul is talking about. We can have the conversation later if you'd like. He's saying that in the eyes of God is a Christian marriage because there is a Christian who is indwelled by the Spirit, who is equipped by the Word, who is surrounded by the church because the church has come. Bloom where you are planted. Well, verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner, oh wait, sorry, uh, yeah, the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace not try to fight this thing off. If they want to leave, that's abandonment, then that can be dissolved. But you don't have to remarry because the church has come. We got you, don't we? We should. But how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? You don't. Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? But that's what you are in this thing for, to bloom where you are planted. I'm out of time, so I want to just quickly give four principles. You'll probably see these again next week as we go into part two and we really dive more deeply into what is Paul's prescription and plan and purpose for marriage. First point goes like this. As our big idea is bloom where you're planted, first point goes like this. When you become a Christian, everything changes. Because of sin and fallenness, we come into this world as objects of wrath. Peter says in Acts 3 that we are by nature God-haters. He says in Ephesians 2, Paul does, we are dead in our sin and trespass, that we're cut off from Israel as Messiah and the very source of life. We are the walking dead. But then we become Christians. We receive and we believe the gospel and everything changes. We are found guilty and yet declared righteous because we are persuaded that Jesus Christ literally takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. We are new creations. We are eternally and everlastingly destined to be with God and his people in glory. And that hope is a life-shaping joy and a certainty of goodness and blessing and glory. We are encapsulated in Christ and we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He illumines his word and we are surrounded by his people. Life takes on a new sensitivity and we are literally in contact with the divine. 
We live with purpose. Everything changes. Point two. When you become a Christian, nothing changes. <laughs> Did you know that? That's sort of the great grand goofy paradox about becoming a believer. Yeah, you, you still have to go to work. You still have to bathe, fellas. You still have to pay your taxes. You still struggle through addictions and foolish tendencies and bad decisions. You still speak the same language that you spoke 24 hours earlier. You still live in the same dwelling. You still have the same family, and you almost certainly drive that same vehicle. You're still in the same marriage, or you're still single, and that doesn't change, nor do all the challenges and struggles that come with all of your marital status. None of the externals and the environmentals really change all that much. And believe it or not, that is precisely part of God's good and sovereign plan. And so it is not incumbent upon us to try to change all the things that don't really mean or matter eternally anyway. God has changed all the things that really last. It's not to say that our marriages and homes don't matter. Far, far from it. It means that you don't have to try to change all the externals about them or your community or your world. Instead, you just bloom where you're planted. Now, I'm just going to say this one. I'm not going to unpack it because we'll get into it next week. This kind of is going to come from the back half of the passage, but the point goes like this. Prioritize spirit-filled marriages more than morally appropriate marriages. In the evangelical church in the 21st century, we've seemed to have drifted much more into caring about morality than about the actual flourishing of the spirit in marriages, in unions, in covenants. We will, Lord willing, talk a whole lot more about that next week. So very quickly, fourth point, repent. I always kind of like the whole John the Baptist idea. Repent. As Mark Schwarzkopf likes to remind me every staff meeting, repentance is a party to which we are all invited, and he keeps a list, and he presents it to me. These are the things about which you must repent. And I, thanks, Mark. Appreciate that. Now, hear me. This is not a stinging rebuke. It's an invitation to rethink our thinking about our marriages, our singleness, and even and especially our church. We're going to spend more time on this next Sunday, and we'll talk a lot more about that, the principles for marriage and for singleness and all that. But I wanted to get this started so that we can cover next week and the rest of the chapter and so that it has some foundation. Many of our people in our culture and context have bought into the idea that our homes and families are the primary place of life and wellness and perhaps even ministry. Not according to the Apostle Paul. Please hear that and join everyone here in being a little uncomfortable and surprised. Most of us prize and value our homes primarily and above anything else, and then we join, sort of accessorize our lives to a church as long as it's convenient, as long as it's helping out at least a little. That notion is completely foreign to what Paul has ever had in mind for the churches, plural, and specifically in Corinth. The homes and families and marriages exist to support all the people in the church that are or were doing kingdom work. Because if you haven't noticed, again, the world is dark and dying, and ultimately there are going to be billions of people heading to a Christless eternity. The church has work to do. So my loving, and I mean that, and hopefully gentle invitation to each of us is to fall more deeply into love and service with our church. We say it because we mean it. Come give your life away. Not to me, not to Bethel, but to the work and the ministry of what Jesus Christ is doing through his bride in this context, in this community. The local church, this local church is God's plan for your life. Jesus put a fine point on all of this, of course, as he uttered these words in a very famous passage, the Sermon on the Mount. 
sort of wraps up all of what Paul has said thus far in chapter 7. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33 and 34, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those other things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. May we be a people who do precisely that and who spur one another on to that glory. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for the morning. Pray that you will use this passage, illumine it by your spirit, encourage us as your people to change us, to root us and ground us in love and truth and grace and mercy, that we would bloom where you've planted us. And I pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.